If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This debate is going to look at the question of morality, the vexed question of, uh, of morality and politics. This week, our speakers take on this vexed question to find out whether morality and politics should stay separate. Does history favour the left or the right? Don't all politicians think they're in the right? Don't even the most realist politicians when challenged defend their positions on moral grounds? Do we want our politicians to take moral positions? And do we believe them if they do? If so, does the history of morality favour the left or the right? We find out and see whether the left has reason to claim the moral high ground. Taking on this task in this heated debate, we have leader of the Women's Equality Party, Sophie Walker, Mail on Sunday columnist, Peter Hitchens, and Labour MP and former vicar, Chris Bryant. We love bringing this podcast for free and we want to continue to do so for as long as possible. As such, it would be great if you could head over to iTunes today and give us a rating or review, as this helps other people find us. As ever, do get in touch and let us know what you thought of the episode. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. And check out the whole host of episodes we have available now and get downloading. Back now to Isabel Hilton, who hosts this week's episode. Let's look at the question of whether history and morality favour the left or the right. Which, Which do you think it is, Chris? I, I, I'm an ex, I used to be a vicar. So I suppose I ought to be arguing that, you know, God favours the left and um, I, you know, I helped uh, run the Christian socialist movement for several years. And, but I, I, I think it's actually very dubious, whether you come from a Christian perspective or any other, to uh, presume that you have all of the moral high ground. You may have good arguments that are based on ethical considerations, but handing out uh, membership cards uh, for any political party to the 
individual members of the Holy Trinity, I think is a mistake. Um, however, my biggest anxiety at the moment is that uh, there is a version of politics which is deliberately amoral. That is to say, I think some people in politics at the moment around the world have decided that if you lie, at least 40% will believe you, so you might as well have those 40%, so you might as well lie. I think that is the fundamental assumption behind Donald Trump. Uh, I think it's the assumption behind, for instance, President Putin in relation to Salisbury. It was deliberate that nobody should believe them because that was part of putting two fingers up to Britain. Um, and I think that that is an essential part of the way that uh, Putin does his politics. I've just come back from China and um, where I was on a visit with the Foreign Affairs Committee and we met with um, a member of the Politburo, uh, you know, one of the 25 men who runs China and his whole political posture was amoral. It was just about the economy, nothing more than that. And you know, we raised various other issues and he was simply not interested. So I would argue that you do have to have a morality. I get a bit worried about people on moral crusades uh, because if you believe in yourself too much and you don't have an element of doubt, there's a danger, I think, that you become a demagogue. The classic instance of this is not political at all, but a friend of mine was driving me to a, uh, a by-election and I said, are you sure this is the right route? And he said, I'm 100% certain. And I, that's what worried me, because when somebody's <laughs> 100% certain, it seems to me they haven't taken into consideration the possibility that they might be wrong. And those are the most dangerous people of all. So a late and bid he was wrong. He w it was of the wrong course, route. Of course. So a late bid for the, for the virtues of doubt. Um, um, I'm an Anglican, after all. <laughs> History and morality on the side of the left or the right. OK, so I'm going to have a go at answering the question. Mm -hmm. Why um, not? That's <laughs> unusual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think um, both sides often, I mean, always lay claim to delivering progress. But from where I'm sitting, I suppose it's it's a plague on both houses because both left and right, the, the morality that they present damages women's lives. And so long as we have uh, history books and morality lessons written by men, institutions ruled and governed by men, economic templates written to the male experience. I mean, Adam Smith is the ultimate, right? His irony-free declaration of man's uh, self-interested man while he sort of was had his meals brought by his mother. Um, uh, you know, th basically, this this is this for me is the is the overarching issue, which is that both sides are bringing morality that doesn't see women. So on the right, we've got a system that prizes family values. Uh, conservatism based on very narrow and quite oppressive views about what families should be, so white, middle class, heteronormative. Uh, but, you, it, but from that position, you can still support and pass laws on, for example, gay marriage, uh, because it follows views on the sanctity of marriage and a, a sort of emulation of heteronormativity, if you like. Um, and from the right, the that sort of morality allows women to thrive when they fall within conservative values. So I d this idea of a meritocracy, for example, where women can make it to be prime minister if they're, if they're just as good as men, if they try harder, they can get further. And this declaration that, you know, the right, it does better for women because they've had two female prime ministers without sort of examining the idea that two women in, in 200 years is probably not that much of a meritocracy. Um, 
But on the right, it's when women fall outside of that very narrow vision of morality uh, that women are punished. So two-child limit on ta child tax credit. Perfect example of punishing families that don't meet conservative values. It's black and Asian families the hardest. Ronnie Mead Trust, I think, yes, in the Women's Budget Group, show that the combination of cuts and changes to universal credit would hit black women the most, leaving the £5,000 worse off a year on average. Uh, now, it's interesting because I think then this strong moral attachment to family values does mean that the right can pass useful uh, legislation that recognises, for example, violence against women and girls, criminalising um, female genital mutilation, revenge porn, the bringing of the domestic abuse bill, but only because that violence is seen as egregious to the morality of family and as anomalous episodes rather than as a result of structural inequality that women experience. And that's why the forthcoming domestic violence bill is so slim, which is a huge disappointment uh, coming from Theresa May's government. What is good about it is that it makes abuse in front of children an, an aggravating factor, it strengthens family law courts, but there is no funding, additional funding, ring-fenced funding, protected, sustainable, sufficient funding for the services run by and for women living with and escaping from male violence. And of course the right has presided over austerity that has made uh, poor women even poorer, disproportionately being paid for by women, 86% of it has been paid by women. Now on the left, of course, we have, uh, as Jeremy uh, uh, JC was saying yesterday, um, the left is the party of women, the left is the party of equality, uh, I disagree fundamentally with this because the left has a structural analysis and a morality that is limited very much to class and particularly in this latest incarnation can't see any oppression that's not Western and capitalist. And that is why in the past, for example, men on the left have condoned FGM as a cultural practice because they don't see the oppression of black and Asian women by black and Asian men. It doesn't fit into their structural class analysis. Um, the left is obsessed with working class men's jobs Jeremy Corbyn's tour this summer, the, his Made in Britain Brexit plan that affirms his 50-year focus on manufacturing, which is frankly a slap in the face to millions of women who are uh, disproportionately employed in service sector. Uh, do you know what, how, how the Treasury classifies uh, a woman, a mother raising two children and caring for an, el an elderly parent? Economically unproductive. Economically inactive. <laughs> inactive. <laughs> And the left doesn't have an answer to that because it, it, it ignores the vast amount of work, unpaid and low-paid uh, care work that uh, women do. Uh, and I think, you know, if we're going to talk about morality of equality, we need, I would expect Labour not just to want to nationalise everything from railways to water to energy to Royal Mail, but actually to do something about social care, which has an 80% female workforce and is absolutely on its knees. So, yeah, I mean, the centre-left has made some progress, particularly on representation. Uh, but in the 2015 election, it was a huge uh, disappointment to me to see the left did not make a case against austerity, despite it being evident at that point that women were disproportionately paying for it. Um, it just bargained with itself over how much more of it we could take. Thank you. Does history and morality favour the left yeah. or the right? I, Chris is an ex-vicar. Uh, I'm an ex-Trotskyist. Uh, <laughs> when I was a Trotskyist, of course, I had no morals at all. Uh, which was the whole point of it, that you, uh, you, you set out to do what you thought was right at the expense of anybody or anything that got in your way. And had I ever been in a position to do it, I would have done terrible things to my opponents on those grounds, because I believed so profoundly that I was right. Uh, and one of the reasons why I am now, oddly enough, in the same church as Chris Bryant is because I decided to put a stop to all that. I didn't think it was 
legitimate anymore to believe so strongly that I was right, that I could even think of treating people as I would have done had I successfully achieved the Bolshevik Revolution, which I sought so actively in the 1960s and 1970s. So morality in politics seems to me to be dangerous. The other thing about morality is it seems to me to be increasingly, as I get older and nearer and nearer to being dead, uh, that it seems to me to be very much about yourself and not about other people. The best definition of morality I ever came across was morality is what you do when you think nobody is looking. And uh, the people sometimes get quite shocked when I say that, and, but it, is, it seems to me an honest appreciation of what it's about. What politicians can do about morality is they can quite often push people into doing things they don't want to do because they, the politicians, think those things are right, or they can stop people from doing things uh, that they would otherwise like to do. And my great beef about this is that over the past 50 or 60 years, almost every piece of legislation, social or economic, has been designed to make it harder for people, unless they're very rich, to raise their own children, and particularly for women to stay at home and bring up the next generation rather than going out and being wage slaves. I will, I will say one other thing, that the left over that period have tended to take the view that simply by holding the opinions they have and being on the side of what they term progress, they are themselves moral. And that those who don't hold their views, which I don't, are themselves immoral. So I take, for example, the fact that I happen to think uh, that capital punishment is sometimes justified in the case of heinous murder. Now, you can argue about this with me and you can disagree with me about it and I will happily take you on. But the reaction of most self-described civilized persons in, in London to any suggestion of that kind is to recoil like a salted snail from me as a person because I am so evil uh, that I hold this view. And this seems to me to be a major problem in public discourse. You cannot really debate against anybody who despises you. And I find that it's very difficult a lot of the time to actually hold debates because very rapidly the rules of reason and logic and the, 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 the presentation of fact in support of argument flies out of the window and it becomes about who and what you are. And that seems to me to be a major problem with almost all modern political discourse. The left think they're right, and not merely that, they think they're better people. Hmm. Well, uh, that, that brings us on to the, uh, we're, you know, we're always encouraged by a repentant sinner. You, you've re retreated from your absolutist position of your youth. But that does leave the question of, of whether politics should or could be a morality-free zone. So what is the role of morality in politics? Well, the less morality, the better, in my view, because it tends to be very much directed these days in, in, in one direction, that is, in starting foreign wars in other people's countries on the grounds that by doing so you will make things better. And currently there is, uh, certainly in the political class, I'm not at all sure that it's shared by the population, uh, a view that we should actively intervene in the Syrian crisis. Uh, and first of all, we are already intervening uh, we, we, by, by subsidy and secret activity. We have long been encouraging uh, jihadists to rise up against the Syrian government with catastrophic consequences. But secondly, if we, if we went further and intervened more directly, this would prolong a hideous war which has already killed huge numbers of people and turned millions uh, from reasonably happy and content human beings in, in, into homeless refugees. And this it's all been done, is pursued at the moment, and has universal support, it seems to me, in the House of Commons, on the grounds that it would be moral for us to intervene, just as the Iraq war was sold to us basically on the moral grounds 
uh, that we would get rid of an evil dictator. And so on. And the Libyan intervention, again, we were getting rid of an evil dictator. We turned both countries into cauldrons of blood and screams. But that was all done on the basis of moral beliefs, which tend to be utopian. So I would be very much against that form of morality in politics. In other matters, say whether discussing the education system or the health service, people should be a good deal more willing, unlike Chris Bryant's unfortunate 100% driver, a good deal more willing to recognize that they might not actually be 100% right about the issue. That would be a moral thing to do. So, so Chris, the, the question of morality, as, as laid out by Peter, uh, to be approached with caution and, uh, and certainly if, when delivered, to be delivered with competence. I'm finding this really difficult that I'm agreeing rather a lot with him. This is seriously <laughs> alarming. This is yeah. I might have to go it's to... Because it's the first time you've ever listened to what I've said. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's mostly because you just agreed with what I said earlier. So... Um, <laughs> But oh uh, I, I remember <laughs> <laughs> boys in politics. So, yep. um, but I, I, well, I remember it's interesting. I, there's a debate about um, the involvement of the private sector in the NHS in Britain, right? And I think many people on the left think that it's immoral somehow for the, um, including people in my own party, think it's immoral for the private sector to be involved in the NHS in any shape or form. Indeed, I, I remember sitting on a panel in Wales in uh, a Welsh Labour um, Party conference and a um, leading figure in the Welsh Assembly said this. He said, I will not allow any involvement whatsoever of the private sector in the NHS in Wales. And I said, what about opticians? Well, obviously opticians. Uh, chemists? Well, yes, obviously, obviously you have chemists. And so it goes on. I mean, sometimes I think people, when they adopt ab absolutist positions, simply don't allow um, the, the light of you know, facts and common sense to come in. But at the same time, I mean, I disagree with uh, uh, Peter about um, Libya. I didn't vote for the Libyan um, adventure. I thought it was misguided um, and wrong, not particularly on a moral argument. There was a moral argument which was being made, which was not about removing Gaddafi. It was actually about the fact that there were, um, I can't remember how many people trapped um, who were clearly about to get, be, be killed by Gaddafi's forces. Well, they, there was, there was an alleged massacre which was going to take place in Benghazi, and there were alleged exactly. mass rapes. And anyway, I mean, I, I, they, I, I, as they didn't have any nuns, they couldn't claim they were being raped, and, and as far as I know, no one was being... No, anyway, no babies I didn't were being bayoneted. But people really ought to learn to, 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 to be yeah, careful about, yeah. about atrocity I, propaganda, oughtn't I, they? I, I agree with that. However, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the 1930s at the moment, and lots of people in Britain refused to believe about the atrocities against the Jews in the 1930s, partly because they thought that we should not have a moral position on that whatsoever. Um, Did they? And if I look at the three interventions, or the three countries uh, where in the Middle East where there's been a dispute over the last few years, um, so Iraq, Libya and Syria, um, non-intervention, predominantly non-intervention in Syria, has led to far more people being displaced, many millions, um, destabilizing other countries in the region. Um, it's a miracle that Lebanon has not collapsed into uh, um, civil uh, unrest and many more people being killed. Now, it's not that I'm Chris, arguing... Chris, can I just... Uh, just but, uh, hold on a second. I'd quite like to say something at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, um, but when, but, but the, the, the moral case for intervention goes back to the responsibility to protect. Yeah. And that was a shift between the state as the kind of predominant uh, subject of care in, in the UN to the people. Yeah. And that strikes me as a, you know, a, a moral argument that one could defend. 
Whether uh, how you act on it is another issue. But in terms of its morality, surely... The treatment of the I only wanted to make a factual point. I mean, the, the Washington Post says, and I think they, we could reasonably assume they're right, that the CIA's budget for intervention on the side of the jihadis in Syria has been roughly $1 billion a year. That's not non-intervention. The, the West has been intervening outside of the Gulf countries very heavily in Syria for, for ever since, uh, what is it, 20, uh, 2011. 2012 particularly, um, in supplying arms and equipment and training and all kinds of other facilities to the jihadis who have been fighting against the Assad state. Right, but there there has been, mean, there's not but, been right, no Peter, such thing as non-intervention. Fine, been but, very what, strong what, intervention. But, you, but again, you haven't quite answered the question of whether you think the responsibility to protect is a, is a justifiable moral position, right, however it's executed. But, but all of this comes down to Machiavelli, right, which says that you just, you, that politics... The justification of what you do in politics is about the ends justifying the means. And, well, and, and I think actually what we keep doing is conflating. We yeah. keep roughly what he said. Yeah. Um, he, we keep conflating morality and human rights here, actually, is what is going on a lot of the time. Um, and I think that morality does inconsistently govern politics, but I think where we see it consistently, um, as Peter points out, is the case for war, which is always being presented as. You know somebody's moral idea versus somebody else's idea of which human rights we should be protected. Um, but the one thing that we, that I think, my big beef with this is that the thing that we very, very rarely look at more closely is the constant uh, uh, capacity that people are given to vote against women's human rights, women's particularly reproductive rights, on the grounds of a vote on conscience. And you can sit here and talk about war and. But like every single day, we make decisions about women's reproductive rights that are not based on human rights, but are based on somebody else's version of morality. And, uh, and it's happening on the right. This, the, the Conservatives won't support women's rights, particularly won't support Northern Ireland women's rights because of this uh, horrific deal that they've done with the DUP. And on the left, uh, Stella Creasy's doing brilliant work, but uh, she, her party's not backing her up. Labour doesn't have a, a policy to back it up. They should Can be I pushing the government on this policy. But broadly speaking... Would you acknowledge that yes, I have? Yes, I would acknowledge that you right. have, but I'm talking about party position as opposed to individuals. I, but let, let's go back to the question of the, of the, of the left's claim to, to uh, the moral high ground. Do you, I mean, would you, would you support that? Do you think this is tenable at this point? And do you think it's doing the left any good in, a, in an era where, as, as indeed we've discussed already in this, in this, in this conversation, uh, the question of how you deliver politics is as, much, is as important as the moral basis from which you begin? Well, I think the left is many different things. Um, and at the moment in politics, uh, the left is quite uncertain where it stands, not only in this country, but in, in many other places. I, th I think self-righteousness is one of the least attractive things in politics, personally. Mm. It's one of the reasons I never really cared for Simon Hughes very much. <laughs> oh, right. Well, <laughs> 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 Sorry, Simon Hughes. Um. <laughs>
It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, do you have a view on Simon Hughes that you'd like to pick uh, up? <laughs> I would like to talk about, I mean, I'd like to talk about the left's sense of itself as being, the, you know, the, the obsession with morality, if you like, the better, the left is the are better people. Um, and, and actually, the, the, the damage that I see this doing in terms of getting um, better all-round out outcomes. So, I mean, I saw this up close when I um, campaigned in Shipley. So the general election in 2017, um, the Women's Equality Party's number one target seat was Shipley, where Philip Davis MP sits. I don't know if anybody in here knows Philip Davis. Um, basically, he believes in um, uh, equality of opportunity, but not equality of outcome. Um, he uh, filibustered against the Istanbul Convention Bill to end violence against women and girls because it didn't mention men in the title. Um, he has suggested that uh, people with disabilities should be paid less. Uh, he is somebody who stands for everything that um, I think is wrong in politics. Um, and I went and uh, moved up to Shipley to contest him for eight weeks. It was our number one target seat. The Labour Party was furious, absolutely furious. I spent about seven weeks of that campaign fighting with uh, Labour, uh, rather than uh, uh, actually managing to land blows on Philip because the Labour Party were absolutely outraged that we would be there getting in the way, splitting their vote as they saw it. And they spent huge amounts of time uh, trolling me, abusing me, uh, uh, fighting me, instead of getting out and, and fighting uh, Philip in a seat which they hadn't made a target seat. Um, but the whole of that campaign was characterised by a sense that this is, ours, this is our seat, we are the better people. If he is a baddie, then we are the only people that can take him on. And what we were trying to do was to mobilise one candidate, whether it was me or anybody else, against him. Um, and, 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 the, and it was a really lost opportunity. I'm delighted to say that as a result of me running in Shipley, Labour subsequently made it a target seat and has subsequently chosen a woman to fight it. Right. So that's an example of the left claiming a moral high ground. It spent the whole, yeah, they spent the whole election claiming the moral high ground, which basically meant having a pop at me instead of having a pop at Philip. Are you saying you never claimed the moral high ground? I'm saying that I was there as a I was there to do what our party sets out to do, which is to achieve women's equality. Um, and the Labour Party, which consistently says it is the party of women's equality, was more interested in fighting me than making that a target seat. But the, it, Shipley has been a target seat. It's a marginal seat historically. It's been Labour and Tory. Yeah. The only party who is likely to take the Tory out there is Labour. And just as we've seen in successive American elections, when the left splinters and gets all self-righteous about each other, um, the right wins. But you see, we're And that's what happened in Shipley. No, no, you not gave the seat to the Tory, not to the all. person that you most don't want to have. No, not at all. In fact, what happened was that we uh, knocked on 31,000 doors. We got more people out to vote than ever before, and we halved his majority. Uh, we also brought it to the attention of Labour. And you didn't and halve we his majority. We halved his majority. <laughs> we, we got the vote out for you, Chris. <laughs> right, so let's not refight the whole Shipley by-election no, no, forever. <laughs> But you see, women's equality is not being self-righteous. It's it's it is about saying we're tired of you assuming that we will continue to wait in line. We are tired of you assuming that we will keep voting for you until you get around to us. That is the self-righteousness of the left, which is leaving women behind. And that's because you're absolutely right. It's my opinion, and I'm doing I, I, something I, I, about it. I get the strong opinion. Get the strong impression that yeah. you don't just think it's your opinion. You think you're absolutely right. I think the economy mm. would do better if 100% of the population had a chance 
uh, and I think society well, would do better if 100% of people got a chance to share care um, and, uh, and you know, men could stay at home if they wished, all that. I mean, I just think that we are working to, te to templates that don't work, so um, and I want to try something different. Could we invite you to lay out the moral position of the right, since we've had the left I, I over? I don't speak for the right. I would say my moral position is that, is, that, is that morality is, is for individuals, but I do think that it's getting very hard uh, in a society with an increasingly strong interfering state a state which, uh, in my view, intervenes very much on behalf uh, of, uh, of commerce and business uh, to make people's lives more and more subject to the needs of business and whose cynical alliance with what I think is now fourth stage feminism is really all about getting as many women into the workplace as cheap uh, compliant wage slaves as it could possibly manage. Mm -hmm. I think this particular cynical alliance has done enormous damage to personal and private life in our country. I think that the basis of freedom in any country is private life, and I think the basis of private life is strong families. And I think that both commerce and the state dislike strong families intensely and want to get rid of them. And so we see this desert uh, of, uh, of zero-hour contracts and, 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 yeah. and low-wage jobs in which nobody can afford uh, what, would, what, a, what a normal British working-class family of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s would have seen as normal a one income being enough to live on. So we all have to go out and slave for next to nothing uh, for, for global corporations. And this somehow uh, has come into alliance with, uh, with a cause which considers itself to be feminist. I, I do not disagree no, with anything, not, in, in, anything at all in Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. I think it's an absolutely perfect statement of the feminist case. I don't think that feminism was ever about the destruction of family life or the regimenting of women into wage slavery uh, as it has become. And I think that well, I agree with you. feminism actually was you. interested in, 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 the, in, the, in the welfare of women, it wouldn't go down this road. But then I completely you agree, but that's not feminism. Surely you have just made the case, you ask, you so made the case uh, that's the, that's the right. against the uh, politics of interest rather mm. than a politics of morality. I'm That's sorry, so could you put so, so, so it again? I'm not you, sure I quite you have got it. Haven't you just made the case against a politics which is defined by interest rather than with well, a moral compass? Say, I'm saying that, that a policy which, which presents itself as moral is in fact, is, is in fact a policy of, of, of commercial interest and the pursuit of power, uh, which is so very often the case. And this is, this, this is what idealist politics is about. It presents uh, hard... Uh, commercial and political interest as a moral case, and people are fooled by it, and then they find afterwards that mm. they were fooled. So would you, Chris, as a member of the Labour Party, shall we yeah, say no, I am a left. member of the Labour Party. Shall we, I'm just, <laughs> that wasn't in doubt. It All was right. kind of where to position the Labour Party at this point, yes. or, or indeed members of the Labour Party like you. I mean, the, 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 would you see a, a major moral difference between the left and the right in, in politics in this country at this point? I find it difficult to generalise for the Labour Party at the moment. I mean, I think, to be honest... Astonishment. No, well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a very serious point, which is at the moment, in, certainly in, in parliamentary politics, and that's not the whole of politics, but it's part of it, um, the, the two major parties are fundamentally divided down the middle. And one of the things I've argued for a long... I'm in favour of proportional representation, um, simply because I think the kind of battle that we have about Shipley... Um, is played out because we have a majoritarian system where it's first past the post. Mm. And actually, I'd much prefer it if people were able to vote for the party that they really believe in. You would probably see the parties splinter more, 
uh, the Labour Party is in, in effect a coalition between um, uh, socialists and social democrats and the Tory party between cultural patriots um, and economic pragmatists. Um, and those two, we will probably be better off in politics. Mm -hmm. We probably have politicians telling more truths um, if you had a system which was more multifaceted. Um, but that's not the situation we've got at the moment. So what I try to do in, in my own political life is uh, there are things that I believe in. For me, it is an article of faith, for instance, um, that we should remain in the European Union. I, I was a Remainer, I remain a Remainer, I'll remain a Remainer until my dying day. Um, and, um, <laughs> but I know that for some other people, it's just a question of how you play out the next few months. Um, and uh, and, and that, is, that is quite a tough sort of place to be in. Um, as it happens, I also normally believe in compromise. If I'm in a room of 10 people are disagreeing, I try to be the person who's trying to build the compromise. Um, that's not an answer to your question, probably. I, it's just me exploring why I find present moment politics really very tough. Mm. Uh, yes, I think, I think you get a lot of support on that um, position. And I think also yeah. that, you know, you've touched on the state of current politics in terms of the, of the, of the incoherence of, of political parties in this country, uh, which had, is a very confusing position. But at the same time, in terms of the wider debate, um, and, and Peter mentioned this in his opening remarks, is that the extreme positions uh, that, are, that are taken in the wider public debate make political discussion uh, and the compromise, which you, you've uh, embraced as, a, as an important part of politics, uh, very difficult right now. And, and I don't know, Peter, if you'd like to, given, given that, which I, I think is pretty evident, that politics, that the, 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 the wider discussion of politics has become extremely hostile and unpleasant, uh, what's the future of that debate? How can we move politics on from uh, the, the, the disqualification of somebody's views on the basis of the perception of their position and their moral belief? Well, I think it's too late. And I, I'm afraid that for about 20 years now, from my own position, uh, originally believing that I could do some good, I put deliberately in front of people on the left, such as Chris and many others, a series of objections to the, the policies they were pursuing. Uh, whether they were policies on education, whether they were policies on crime and punishment, whether they were policies on immigration. I said, these policies are s ignore so completely the real position and the plight, particularly of the poor in our country, that you are storing up for yourselves a great rebellion against you, uh, which will be much less nice than I am. And you don't think, I, you don't think I'm nice, so you wait and see. And I said this, and I said this, and I said, I got nothing but scorn and rejection. Uh, and I could live with that personally. You know, I, 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 my own life is, is, is blessed. Uh, it doesn't make any real difference to me, and I should be dead soon, so the consequences of it don't matter very much. But the truth was that I was genuinely trying to argue with the left, who had, it seemed to me, taken control of politics, the academy, the civil service, and the law. They had a responsibility to listen. Otherwise, they were risking something. This was Weimar, and they were risking something horrible afterwards. And now they have Donald Trump, and they don't realize it was their fault. And now they have the referendum result, and they don't realize it was their fault. To this day, they have not understood that it was their own behavior which led to these consequences. And the, the, I hate the division of this country at the moment over the European issue, on which I am not what most people expect. I've, I very much favor the Norway option. I refused to take any part in the referendum campaign. I didn't vote in it. 
And people automatically assume, because I'm right-wing, that I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's not so. There are, other, there are other positions which one can take. And I regret enormously, and I look, looking back at the history of my own country, I can think only of the periods of Munich and Suez as comparable times when people genuinely stopped speaking to each other, which is a disaster for civil society. But it's not my fault. It's your fault for paying <laughs> no attention whatever right. to the incessant attempts by, by, by people such as me to say to you, you've got this wrong. You're ignoring really important people. You're ignoring the poor in this country and the, and the, the lives that they're living, and, and you will eventually pay the price, and now you're paying it. Well, and now I, we've I, got I that case. So my I'm only pleasure in life, my only pleasure in, in public life... Is to say I told is, you so. Is to say I told you so, exactly. And that's <laughs> what I... I am, I am the, the, the chief of the I told you so industry, and all my books on the site which say I told you so are in the <laughs> tent out there. Buddy. Well, now, now, now we're clear on that. Sure. Uh, right. I might as well get something out of it. So, I, I mean, I think this is where I cycle back round again to the beginning to say, you know, a plague on both houses again, because like, we got where we were because neither side was able to offer a vision. Uh, Brexit was uh, two options which were both crap. Um, you know, you either had uh, far, uh, Farage um, harking back to sort of golden age of empire and the 1950s model of, you know, where sort of women knew their place. This is a guy who was like a city trader, an MEP for 15 years. He swapped his, uh, his cigars for cigarettes and his wine for beer, and he pretended he was a man of the people. Um, and then on the other side, we had the sort of same cabal of Oxbridge men who'd failed in their campaign to get Britain into the euro and sort of sent out distress signals from the Financial Times. Um, and people wanted progress, and progress was not on offer, so they picked change. And a huge number of those people were women, because actually the poorest people in this country are women. Two-thirds of the poorest people in this country are women. And Brexit let everybody down on all sides. And I think that... Um, I mean, I also think there is a different version of feminism, believe it or not, Peter, that isn't a choice between staying at home or being a cheap wage slave. It's one where you actually invest in social infrastructure. Um, that's never, ever, ever been done. Equal investment in, in, in social infrastructure, as in construction, yields more jobs, higher tax revenues, lower benefit payments. So there is a third way, and it involves women. Um, and I think... Um, OK, can I, can I... But I also... The last thing I'd like to say in terms of morality is that what we've ended up in, along with this sort of morality is certainty. And certainty is a truly terrible, terrible thing in politics. Mm. We need more people to be asking questions, and we need an honesty. I would rather follow somebody, or in fact, I would rather be the person <laughs> saying, I don't know, let's figure it out together, than to follow somebody who says, I'm stronger than him, come with me. And we right. are heading very quickly into that nihilism, and, uh, and I find that really frightening. So, so are, you, are you saying that the Women's Party is offering a politics that is less polarised? I'm saying, and it's, well, it's not the Women's Party, it's the Women's Equality Party. I beg your pardon, women's um, because the point of it is that we are building a template uh, that creates equality by looking at it through feminism, and that that version of building for equality actually makes life better for everyone. And is that a politics of less polarisation, less moral certainty? I think it is about... We have to get away from the binary of left and right. Um, and I don't, by that, I don't mean some sort of poncy new centre-ground party funded by the men that got kicked out of all the other parties. <laughs> <laughs> it's just cheap, shabby politics, that. <laughs> it okay. is. I, I'm sorry. I... I, I respect many of the opinions, but I don't respect the way they're delivered. But I, I think, think that is nasty politics, I think writ it's large. I think, I think it is men with power assuming that they can go away and start another party. 
And that's a huge assumption. It's the same people, it's the same money, it's the same opinions. And what I'm saying is, there are lots of people hate. with very, very different. No, it's not it's at all. It's politics of hate. It's writ large. not. It's frustration. It it's it's women and people who have been left behind watching the same people with the same opinions and the big pots of money making politics that works for them. And it's very frustrating. Right. I'm not. I'm not all detecting a loss of polarisation here. But um, I I represent I represent one of the poorest constituencies in the country. And the and the kind of things that. And think so. Po and politics in Wales is slightly different because we have a Welsh Assembly which runs its politics in a different way from the government in Westminster. Um, but the, the issues I know on the doorstep are: 30 years ago, if you worked as a builder, you'd be able to buy the house that you built if you worked 40 days, a 40 hours, 40 days a week, 40 hours a week. Today, you would not stand a chance of being able to do that, even in a place like the Ronda, where house prices are much lower than they are anywhere like here. Um, at the moment, um, the majority of the people in the Ronda who are living in poverty and have to rely on food banks are in work. So yes, of course, I think there's a morality about all of this. I think it's immoral that we are the sixth richest country in the world and we, have, we don't spend enough on our public services to be able, we don't even spend enough on um, allow people to have uh, legal aid anymore to be able to defend the benefits as disabled people that they should be entitled to, which is why lots of people are now living in even worse abject poverty um, than in other countries in Europe. And so, of course, I think there's a moral argument to this, but I have to fit that with the fact that we have a parliamentary system in this country which is based on first-past-the-post, which delivers to big parties. I'm not in favour of people splittering off from the Labour Party because in the end we have a first-past-the-post system and you will either have a Tory government or a Labour government come the next general election oh, and you've got to get used to it. I'd love to change every element of the system. The House of Lords, I don't, I don't believe I don't anybody don't should have an election. You can't, but you, you can't know, stand the there and say you've got to get used to it. Why should we have to get used to it? So like that you can change it. But you're not, but we're not, there's nothing to vote for. There's nothing to vote for. One of the reasons we've got, we offer joint membership. We're the only political party that offers joint membership. You can join us and be a member of any other political party, apart from the BNP, you don't want you. And the point is that we have got to start being more collaborative. We're looking at joint membership. We're looking at joint candidacy. We are trying to do different collaborative ways of working because you can't just stand and say, you know, you, you have to put up with this. Okay. I'm not saying, I'm saying right, you've got right, to change right, it, hey. but the only way you can change it is, is by changing the system. And you can only change the system by winning. Thank you. Yeah, we but have had a kind outside. of a, a proposition of greater collaboration as opposed to uh, polarisation and position taking. Um, and would you... Please join me in thanking uh, Sophie Walker, Chris Vines, and Peter Hitchens. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Sophie Walker, Peter Hitchens, and Chris Bryant. As ever, please do make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. Head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review as this helps other people find us. And of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.